So today we're continuing our series, What About? And we've been talking about the what abouts of faith shift. That for so many of us, whether you're in the room right now or whether you're joining us online, you're probably here because at some point your faith began to shift. Um, at some point, the answers you were given no longer answered the questions. Um, and, and you're wrestling through what that means. Some people use the language of deconstruction. Some people use the language of unraveling. There's all sorts of ways to describe it. And it's a unique experience for everybody. But yet, we all sort of have shared this common like, okay, I, I know what I maybe don't think anymore, but what about this? And we've been exploring, like, what about the Bible? What about prayer? What about the cross? What about John 14, 6? And today, I want to talk a bit about what about communion. And, and so two weeks, next week, we're going to talk about what about the end times. So bring your foil hats. Um, and then the next week, Palm Sunday, we're just going to spend time responding to questions. So we'll take live questions from right here in the room. We'll take live questions from YouTube. We'll sort of trade one off the other. And we've had some really good questions come in already. Um, so we'll be here for a really long time. And uh, I'm kidding. We'll let you go in a few hours. And then... Um, uh, but I'm already planning, I'll tell you this, and I bring this up to say this, I'm already planning What About 2.0 for later this year, because there are other things, like today I originally planned on talking about communion and baptism, and I realized that there's just no way I could do either one justice together. Um, and so, you know, people have asked questions about demons, and about sexuality, and about all sorts of stuff, so we're going to be doing some of that later um, this year. So if you have more like whatabouts, let me know what they are. I'd be happy to talk about them. So today I want to talk about communion, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, um, whatever language, and we'll talk about that in a minute too that you grew up or are familiar with it. Just to give you my experience, um, so my background is sort of two parts. One, I was born into a family that was free will Baptist. Any free will Baptist familiarity in the room? All right, yeah. Feel so seen, um, and and in that Free Will Baptist upbringing, we celebrated communion once a year on a Saturday night in tandem with foot washing and a business meeting, real big time. Um, and so we would do, and we actually most people called it a foot washing, um, uh, which is just what you think. Jesus in, in the Gospel of John washes his disciples' feet. Um, on the Thursday before he's uh, arrested. And so it was something they did every year. They would wash feet and they would take communion once a year on a Saturday night, and that's it. And so I had very little familiarity. Then we went liberal and became Southern Baptists. <laughs> liberal move. And at the Southern Baptist Church, we would do it on a Sunday night once a quarter. And so I, it just was something that it wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront of the, the mind or imagination. It was this ritual, and they would read some scripture, and they had the table up front that said, this do in remembrance of me on the front, right? But it just wasn't something that was, uh, I thought very much about. Um, and I bet you have experience. Maybe you grew up in a church that was like high church liturgical, and you did it every week, and there was certain liturgy you did every week, and, or maybe you come from a, a non-denominational background, and there was a way you did it, and it was every week or once a month or, or whatever, um, but the question I want to begin with today is not how, what has our experience with it been? Um, because I think that there's actually, uh, I'll just say this, I don't think the way we have engaged it is the way the earliest followers of Jesus engaged it. And so what I want to ask today is, what did this ritual or this meal mean for the first followers of Jesus? Because it seems to be how they organized their life together. What did it mean for them 
so that then it might inform what's in our minds when we take it together. Right? It's something we do every week. We read a liturgy, and we right now, because of COVID, we peel the top off that little horrible-tasting styrofoam cracker, and then we drink some grape juice that may or may not be expired. Right? <laughs> so like, when, we, when we do that, what's the thing we're actually doing? And so I want to give us a frame today so that week by week as we engage this, we know that, yes, we're doing this ritual that sort of is a thing Christians do, but what do we mean by it? And what are we saying when we do it? So first, what do we call it? How many of you grew up or in your familiarity, this ritual where you take bread and wine or bread and grape juice or whatever, it was called communion. How many of you are from communion background? Okay, the good, I don't even know if I need to ask the rest of them. How many of you grew up calling it Lord's Supper? Yeah, how many of you, in the book of Acts, it calls it breaking bread. Did anybody call it that at all? Uh, what about common table? Any common table? Okay. What about the agape or the love feast? Has anybody heard that before? Yeah. Um, and then how many of you, in your experience, it was called Eucharist? Yeah. I think Eucharist is one of my favorite names simply because of what it means. It's this combination of words in Greek that means good gift. Eucharist is the good gift. And for 2,000 years, Christians have argued about it, which is what we do, right? We've argued about who can participate, who gets to actually do it. Anybody ever been in a situation where you were at a church that you had to be a member of that church to participate, and so when they passed it, you were intent, like, it was sort of like you were invited to not take it? Anybody? Yeah, isn't that such a strange, it's like being at somebody's house for a dinner party and they're like, no food for you. Like, do not, do not, when the mashed potatoes come by, don't even think about it, right? It's sort of this weird experience. Who can participate? Who can serve the elements? Like, who gets to do it? How many of you were in a context where it was always a priest or a pastor or somebody in some sort of official capacity uh, who served it? Yeah, like, there, you had to have some sort of special training. How does it work? It's a question we come back to a lot, like with prayer. How does it work? How does the Eucharist work? What actually happens when we take wine and bread? Does something magical happen? Right? Do we suddenly become cannibals because we're eating actual flesh and actual blood? Is that what happens? And then how often should we do it? Is there a prescription for how often we should do it? I think those, those are questions Christians have argued about for roughly 2,000 years. This ritual that essentially could be sort of the thing that binds Christians across the generations together is the thing that in so many contexts has excluded people, has made them feel guilty and ashamed. How many of you were ever told that if you were taking communion and you had some sort of sin in your life that was unconfessed, that God would get you? Anybody told that? Yeah, we're going to take a look at that text this morning. Yeah, that whole, like, if, if there's anything in your life you haven't repented of, like, who, then who can go take communion? Like you've, you've eventually just ruled everybody out. Um, and so what's going on? I, I, just, I don't think the way we practice it, which is like a, a little bit of bread and a little wine, a dip and, or a sip, I don't think that's actually what the first Jesus communities were doing. And so I want to look at two lenses today. I want to look at this ritual through two lenses. I want to look through a first century Jewish lens, which is what Jesus was. And then I want to look through a first century Roman lens, because that's the empire in which Jesus did all of the Jesus things that Jesus did. 
All right, so Jesus was a Jewish person who lived in a place that was occupied by, at the time, the greatest, wealthiest military economic superpower the world had ever known. What did he mean? What did he think? What did these first Christians, the first, they weren't Christians, the first disciples, what did they think they were actually doing? And so I'll just read Mark 14. This is in the Gospels. It's our first. Paul actually mentions it. We'll look at Paul a little bit later in the Roman context, but this is the first Gospels mention of what we call the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. That's the, that's the Eucharistic formula, by the way. When you, when you read the Gospels, you'll find in this moment, or whenever Jesus gives bread, when he's sharing food, he always does this pattern of takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. Um, and it's just interesting to see that pop up. He said, take this is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until the day when I drink it in a new way in God's kingdom. All right, so that's what's known as the Last Supper. It was really strange because there were only like 13 of them, but they had a table for 26, so they could all fit on the backside for the picture. Um, they, they, they were having painted of it. Um, but here's the thing about the Last Supper. I, I think growing up, I just always assumed when I read that, oh, the Last Supper, uh, that's just the time Jesus ate with people. But the word last implies that there is at least a first and at least others. And what you'll find out if you read the Gospels is, is that food, eating meals, was central to the life and work of Jesus. Jesus we find him all the time showing up at parties, showing up at banquets, showing up at gatherings. So much of his teaching centered around food, right? Whether it was stories about farm life, agrarian life, or whether he's telling stories about banquets, Jesus keeps coming back to this idea of food. And again and again and again, you find him at a table sharing food with people who he shouldn't probably be sharing food with. He actually gets this reputation of eating with the wrong people people that he shouldn't be eating with. And by the way, it's not symbolic food. The food is not sort of like, well, the food's not the point. It's what we're doing. No, the food was the point. And when you really think about the world Jesus lived in where the majority, the vast, overwhelming 90-some percent, 95 percent of people in Jesus' world that he knew lived in poverty, they were at a subsistence level or below. So when Jesus teaches them to pray, give us today our daily bread, that's not just poetic language. That is an actual request, can we just eat today? Can we just get enough food to get us through today? And then tomorrow, we'll pray it again. Give us bread for today. Food and how to get food was a central concern for the life of the people Jesus would eat with. It's why when he's got people following him out into the wilderness and he's teaching them and suddenly he's like, wow, it's getting late. I bet they're hungry. They, they don't have a lunch because they can't afford a lunch. So let's feed them. Who's got something? Let's take some bread and fish. And let's, like Jesus, everything he does is, is surrounded by this idea of real food meeting a real human hunger. It's what his work was about. But there also is something symbolic happening, I think, through a Jewish lens with Jesus' meals. And I think it has to do with the temple. Jesus was, and by the way, like, I feel a need to say this every time because, and I've just seen it this weekend on social media again, again and again and again, that there is such a deep, embedded anti-Semitism within the Christian tradition where we pit Jesus against his Jewish roots and we, where we essentially um, 
Christianity has been responsible for the persecution uh, of Jewish people throughout our history, and it's tragic and it's terrible. And so I feel the need, every, every time we talk about Jesus within a Jewish context, we need to be reminded Jesus wasn't like the lone Christian person in first century Palestine. Jesus was Jewish. And any of his critiques about his tradition are not critiques from the outside. If Jesus had lived to be 90, Jesus would have still lived and died an observant, faithful Jewish person. That's who he was. And so hear that on the front end when, when I say Jesus had a problem with the temple establishment. And Jesus wasn't the only first century Jewish person that had a problem with the temple establishment. There was this group of people called the Essenes. Has anybody heard of the Essenes? Who were so troubled by what was happening in the temple establishment that they withdrew to the desert, built communes, and how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were discovered in the 1940s. They were, they were the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, so this was not just Jesus being cranky. Jesus had an issue, and here's part of the issue. The way the Roman Empire worked is when they took over a place, they wouldn't just bring in, in the beginning, just bring in all Roman people. They would try to find people within that society that would work with them. And often the way Rome did it is they would work through religious institutions. And so in some ways, the temple establishment that existed in the first century in Jesus' world, they were benefiting from the Roman occupation. Um, they were, the way many scholars put it, they were collaborating with the empire. Um, Borg and Crossan call it, a, the temple was part of a native domination system. Right? So Rome doesn't just do all the heavy lifting. with the, They do it through systems that are already in place. And so for Jesus, it seems like Jesus had a growing frustration with what he saw as a, a system that should have been about liberating people that, that was actually harming people. Are you with me? All right, it kind of makes sense of what Jesus does on Monday of Holy Week when he goes into the temple and he does this prophetic, not a temper tantrum, but a prophetic demonstration to essentially say, if this system doesn't turn around, it's going to be in big, big trouble. And so here's, I think in part, what Jesus meals and why Jesus got so much flack for his meals. I think Jesus was doing temple things at a table. I think Jesus was relocating the action from an altar to a table. And, I, and for years, and I think early on, Christians began to read these words of institution as this is Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. I actually think, and, and yes, we understand that Jesus goes to the cross, body broken, blood poured, and that's a valid interpretation. I think there's actually something more going on there. What if what Jesus is saying is he's not even saying this is my body. And my, what if he's saying when he takes bread and breaks it, he's saying this is my body. I.e., you know when you go to the temple, you separate the body and blood of something. Well, actually, our body, our sacrifice is our shared food. Our blood poured out is our shared wine when we gather together to celebrate the kingdom of God. Because that's what Jesus' meals were doing. They were celebrations of the kingdom of God. Imagine a team throwing, imagine, uh, imagine the Memphis Grizzlies, any Grizzlies fan in the room, when they win the finals this year, because they will. Uh, imagine though, oh, like the night before the finals, the end of the finals, imagine them throwing a victory party. Right, imagine a political candidate the day before an election throwing a victory party. That's what Jesus' meals were. The kingdom of God is here if we have eyes to see it. And here's how we're going to announce it. 
Everybody get together. Bring whatever you have. We're going to share bread. We're going to share food. We're going to share wine. And we're going to celebrate what it looks like when everybody's invited, everybody's included, when all the boundaries that divide us are transcended. And we're going to celebrate that this is what God's kingdom is. And we don't have to wait for it. And we don't have to watch for it. We just have to enter into it right here and right now. It's not somewhere else. We're not having to wait. It's here. I think Jesus is partly with his meals as he's announcing the thing we've been waiting on and praying for, it's here. If we, hey, bring some bread, bring some wine, bring, bring what you have to share, and we're going to transform the world. I think that's partly what's going on. Jesus even, he echoes, right? So he, when Jesus goes into the temple and does his temple action, the gospel writers actually use language from Jeremiah to describe that. Uh, and Jeremiah's problem was with the temple, which he saw as a corrupted institution. When Jesus is teaching at one point, he actually quotes the prophet Hosea when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you see, Jesus is unteaching sacrifice, and then we created a religion around him that was about sacrifice. Talk about adventures and missing the point. He's not creating a new sacrificial system, even a one final sacrificial system where he's the one. He's saying all that God has ever been looking for is human compassion toward other human beings. Our sacrifice isn't removing the body and blood, separating body and blood from someone else, or something else. Our sacrifice is taking the basic necessities of life and making sure everybody around us has them. I think that's pretty powerful. Jesus' meals are enacting all of the commands about justice in the scriptures. All the commands to care about the poor. All the commands to share your food with those, to leave the edges of your field so that those who, who have, have nothing can come and glean and have enough food to eat. Jesus is creating meals where nobody gets left out. And I think that's what's going on from a Jewish lens. But this, this Jewish lens is also happening within a larger context of the Roman Empire. And meals were a big deal in the Roman Empire. Meals were, uh, and they weren't, it wasn't just like, hey, let's go get lunch. I'm talking like these planned, prepared banquets where everything had a meaning, even down to what was on the menu. And these Roman meals were designed to reinforce the Roman societal order. There's a, a writer named R. Allen Street. He has a book called Subversive Meals where he talks about the Eucharist in a first century, uh, in a Roman context. And here's what he says about Roman meals. As an important social institution, the banquet encapsulated the Greco-Roman culture, its values, mores, and ideology. In a sense, each banquet was a miniature reproduction of Roman society and served as a venue where one's social status was recognized and formally solidified. Hence, the banquet was a primary means for social formation throughout the empire. It served to identify and set boundary markers for those living within a stratified society. Anybody ever go to lunch on the first day of high school? I'll never forget it. We all come from different middle schools, and we're now in the same school, and many of us don't know one another. And you're carrying your tray, and you're looking at who's at what table, and where do I belong? Because there's very clear belonging, right? They're very clear. This, this is this clique. These are the people who do this. These are the people who are participating in that. This is how this whole thing works. And you have to find where you fit in the system. And often, unless something happens, you kind of remain where you are in that societal order. Right? Well, I, that's actually what these meals were intended to do. Because in the Roman context, if you were to go to a banquet, you only sat with people of your class. So freedmen 
Free men would sit with only people who were free men. Women were not invited to the table. Enslaved people were not invited to the table. Um, and depending on what your social level was, depending on how much money or where you fell in society, were you a part of the ruling class or were you a part of a lower class, like all of that would go into if you were invited and where you would get invited. So it's possible you could get invited to a feast, but you end up sitting at a table all the way over here and you never really get interaction with the person who's throwing the party because you don't fit the social order to get to that table. And is that pretty clear, right? And so there's this, the point of these meals was to say, Here's who you are, here's where you fit, and this is your ceiling, this is your boundary. You, you only get to move this far. Aren't you glad the world's different? 2,000 years later, so, so, much, so much changed. And so the boundaries were divided up by wealth, by gender, by social status. All of those things determined where you set. Now, think about what these early Jesus communities were doing in that context. Think about these words written by Paul, who we, we give a hard time, but think about these words. Some scholars say this is the first egalitarian statement written in human history. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither enslaved nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you get what he's saying? Like, I, I imagine these early Christian communities would be a lot for people to take in who were from a society that were, was really rigidly boundaried. When they walk into a, somebody's home and they, say, they see men and women, rich and poor, enslaved and free, sitting and sharing food together. And there are no boundaries and there are no divisions and there are no, well, this person sits over here because this is their rank and status, and this person, they get the better. By the way, you remember Jesus' teachings when he's like, hey, when you go into a party, don't look for the best seats. Don't insist. Like, what's he teaching? He's teaching, hey, when we get together and have dinner, dinners, it's a free-for-all. Everybody sits everywhere, and everybody shares their food, whatever they can bring. And so you can imagine some people would be able to bring maybe more quantity and maybe even quality, and then other people would not be able to bring very much. But there wasn't a, well, you brought this, so you eat this. It was, we throw it all, it's a potluck. We throw it all together, and everybody celebrates the kingdom of God together. That's how we eat our meals. Now, think about that when you think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to address a problem. The Corinthian church was struggling in so many areas, right? I mean, if you can imagine, like, a, the Jerry Springer show, the, the church in Corinth could have made it because um, they had a lot going on. But one of the problems they had, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, I don't praise you as I give the following instruction because when you meet together, it does more harm than good. Think about that. He's saying to a community of people, when you all do the church thing together, it makes the world worse, I have so much to say about that in the context of the world we live in right now. <laughs> but that is a rabbit trail I'll save for another time. First of all, when you meet together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. It's necessary that there are groups among you to make it clear who is genuine. So when you get together in one place, it isn't to eat the Lord's meal. Each of you goes ahead and eats a private meal. One person goes hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat, eat and drink in? If you're going to get drunk at home, why are you doing it here, right? He's like, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? That's not the point of this. Or do you look down on God's churches and humiliate those 
who have nothing. He then reminds them of the tradition he gave them and says, look, the way you're practicing the Lord's meal here, it's why some of you are getting sick and dying. And we've read that to say, well, if you eat it in the wrong way, you'll get sick and die. I think what he's saying is there are people in your community who don't have enough food to eat. And when they come to the meeting, they expect to have food to eat and they're not getting enough nutrition and they're getting sick. Don't you have homes to gorge yourself in? The point of the Lord's meal is not to eat, 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 eat for you. The point of the Lord's meal is to get everybody together to remind us that maybe out there, there are all these boundaries we need to work against and push against, but in here, those boundaries don't exist. And everybody gets their fill at this table. Nobody shows up hungry and goes home hungry here. Do you see what Paul's doing? We've turned it into some sort of magical, God's going to kill you. And really what he's saying is the very purpose of this meal was to enact the kingdom of God, to enact God's justice in a world that is so lacking justice. And you've turned it into another opportunity to show off what you've got. And you've turned it into another opportunity to remind those around you who don't have as much as you and who are struggling that you have it so much better than them because you get to eat from the good table. And you get, like the idea of VIP sections at churches, like Paul would write that letter, y'all. And it would contain profanity. <laughs> that mean, this idea, like, no, no, you, you've turned this thing in to the exact opposite. It, it's just like everything else. It's not envisioning and enacting a better world. It's just supporting a world that's harming lots and lots of people. And Paul says, I want you to actually do this differently. So when I think about the Eucharist now, here's what I think about. I think the Eucharist, in the beginning, was an act of resistance against the inhumanity of empire. But you realize they didn't, they weren't, like early Christians who actually got persecuted, by the way, like they didn't just get called out on Twitter, they actually were persecuted. They weren't persecuted because they had beliefs about the afterlife and about some, some sky god who was going to take care of it. They were persecuted because they were doing things that upset social order. When you start bringing people from all different backgrounds and all different contexts and all different uh, levels of society, you bring them into the same room and have them share the same food at the same table, can you imagine how that could begin to upset the world? And I actually think one of the saddest things is that within our scripture, within the Bible, we see an, a command to begin to reverse this. How many of you have read the command in one of the Timothy letters where it's said that women should not speak in the assembly? When women, women shouldn't speak in church. How many of you have read that? I, I can't prove this. My gut on that is that their gatherings where everybody was experiencing equality and equity was so disturbing that people outside the community was starting to ask, why can't we have that? And it's drawing the wrong kind of attention. So within our scripture, I think you have people who are saying, let's soften that a little bit so we don't get in too much trouble. I think in its context, the Eucharist was a radical statement to the empire of, you, you actually don't just get to dehumanize people. We are enacting an alternative kingdom with an alternative vision, and we're not stopping. We're going to this town and this town to this town, and we're starting. This wasn't like starting franchises of, uh, right, uh, a capitalist franchises church. This was people saying, look, we are going to start these little communities that are going to upend the social order in every community they're in. And they're going to push back on the boundaries that separate people. 
and they're going to push back on the inequality that keeps some people from having access to the basic needs of life while other people have way more than they'll ever need. Right? I think it was this radical resistance to the empire. What would it mean if our politicians got nervous every time we celebrated the Eucharist? What if every Monday morning Bill Lee got a note that said, Grace Point did it again. <laughs> They're celebrating the Eucharist. They're not going quietly. They're going to push back on our hateful, bigoted laws. What if? What if? Because in our, in our culture, generally, the church has been co-opted by the empire to support the empire. What if our activity reminded us so deeply about our connection to one another and it caused us to want to work for justice and equity in the world outside of our gathering, right? What if the thing that happened in here was the thing that motivated us into the world to say, if it can happen in here, it can happen anywhere. And so what if we, what if we begin pushing back? What if we be, and then I would say this, the Eucharist reminds us of our calling as a Jesus community to break down barriers and to cultivate human flourishing. When we take the Eucharist, here's what we're saying. If you take the Eucharist in this space, what we're saying is, or if you're joining us online, what we're saying is everybody in this room, if this is one big table, everybody in this space is equal. Everybody in this space matters just as much as everybody else in this space. No matter what you drive, no matter how much money you make, no, no matter what, no matter how long you've been a, a Christian, no matter whatever, everybody in this space, there are no VIPs except everybody. Right? That's, that's, that's what we're saying. That our calling is to remove whatever barriers there are to people finding belonging and flourishing. That there, there are no velvet ropes at Grace Point Church. There is no level of belonging that is not available to everybody. Whether this is your first week or whether you've been here since day one, everybody has the same level of belonging. Everybody has access. That's what we're saying with the Eucharist. That's why we read that liturgy, which we're going to read this morning. That's why we read it every week to remind us. Every single human being is welcome at this table. Whoa, whoa, what if that human being believes? Don't care. But what if they filled in that little bubble in that form that says they're an atheist? Don't care. What if they're not Christian? What if they practice another religion? They want in, they're in. But this radical belonging where the boundaries fall away. And we're reminded that our work and our mission and our calling is to work for the flourishing of every single human being, even the people who don't like us very much. Because I can promise you the people who are doing hateful things in the world aren't happy and fulfilled. They're deeply miserable. And I don't want them to just go away. I actually want them to experience transformation and to become agents of justice in the world. And what if our community was about that work? And you may be like, how do we do that? Well, sometimes it looks like getting together and celebrating the kingdom of God. It's sharing food. It's sharing joy. It's sharing laughter. Sometimes it's, it's what we, I think, do a pretty good job of and want to do an even better job of in this community, which is, is actually see people. Right? So that you're, you're not here. You're not a number. We want to see you. And we want to know who you are. And we want to know what your story is. And we want to know what it looks like for our community to surround you and help you work toward human flourishing in your life. And, wh and 
one of the beautiful things about this community is I see that happening in our online community as well. People who have never been in the same room with each other, who are loving one another and cheering one another on and surrounding one another and supporting one another and seeing one another. I think it looks like working for justice, not just talking, but working, right? Sometimes it looks like hitting the streets and marching and protesting. Sometimes it looks like picking up the telephone and calling your senator, calling your congressperson, calling the governor's office, calling anybody and saying, hey, the, the, the law, because there's this law right now that's going around, a potential law here in Tennessee that will make what Florida's doing look tame. And so it might be picking it up, picking up the phone and saying, I will call you every single day, many, many times a day, until this gets squashed, because this is a dehumanizing practice. It looks like all sorts of things. It looks like what I see happen every week in person and online, which is welcoming one another, embracing one another. This Eucharist thing, when we do it together, we're not just saying, well, this is, a, this is a ritual we do because Christians have done it for a long time. It's something we're doing as a way of reminding us we're part of something that at its root was revolutionary, challenged the way the world was carved up, and not only called for a better world, but in the very way it existed, tried to bring that better world into existence. That's what we want to be doing here at Grace Point. And look, I think what makes it the Eucharist, by the way, isn't what's being eaten, but how it's being eaten. Because I know some of you right now, you're watching us online, and you've got like Ritz crackers and orange juice. Who knows what you've got? Oreos and milk. And you're in your pajamas, more comfortable than I am right now. And, it, you know, we used to get so worked up about, well, the elements have to be exactly right. I don't think it's the point. I don't think it's what's being eaten. I think how it's being, is it being eaten in equality? Is it being eaten in resistance to a world of brutality? Is it being eaten to announce a better world that we're not waiting on to show up? We're, it's just waiting on us to enact it. Right? Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Like, I don't think the person we're waiting on is the divine. I don't think we're like, God... We're waiting. I think the whole time we've been waiting for God, God has been waiting for us. And the Eucharist is our reminder. God is waiting for us. God is waiting for us to work for a better world. God is waiting for us to get so sick and tired of all of the, the dehumanization that exists all around us all the time so that we'll actually start seeking to offer a better vision and enact a better vision. Are you with me?